Forgotten Dogma, No Salvation Outside the Catholic Church, a conference given by Father Isaac Mary Relier at the 2019 Army of Advocates Conference in Houston, Texas, hosted by the Fatima Center. We'll just start with a prayer. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, Amen. Remember, O most compassionate Virgin Mary, there never was it known that anyone who fled to thy protection, implored thy help, or sought thy intercession was left unaided. Inspired by this confidence, we fly unto thee, O virgins, O virgins, our mother. To thee we come, before thee we stand, sinful and sorrowful. Mother of the Word incarnate, despise our petitions, but in thy mercy hear and answer. Our Lady, seed of wisdom and spouse of the Holy Spirit. Saint Joseph. St. Francis, St. Pio. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, amen. As Kevin said, uh, I'm going to be speaking on the doctrine, no salvation outside the church. This, my friends, is definitely one of the most difficult subjects to tackle. This is a dogma that's being denied by most people, including Catholics, unfortunately. And, and let's make, be very clear, if you deny this doctrine, you are not a Catholic. You're outside the church. And so that's the whole doctrine, no salvation outside the church. But every Roman Catholic must know this and believe it. And if you deny it, you are in heresy. And so it's really difficult. And, say, and I would say that so many Catholics deny this doctrine. It, it's, it's amazing. Starting from the top down. Prelates, bishops. I uh, would go on and on. Most priests don't believe it. I, I, I've had so many debates with good, supposedly good Orthodox priests that do not believe in this doctrine. And anyone who dares to preach this doctrine will be persecuted and will be attacked. And I can tell you it's true. I've been preaching for almost 20 years now, all over the world. I've given many, many missions. And I, you could tell what stronghold the devil has on people and what subjects really get him riled up. And nothing, my friend, there's not one other subject on the faith that gets the devil more furious than when this doctrine is preached in its fullness. I've been spit on for this doctrine, literally spit on, and praise God. Because the bottom line is, it's all a matter of salvation. And that we have to pay the price for souls. And so, uh, not to, the last conference I gave in Philly was about the crisis of manhood. And I spoke about how most men and almost all priests are emasculated. And emasculated men seek comfort. They flee from contradiction. They flee from any kind of conflict or, or whatever. So they want it easy. And this is what's been going on in the church for a long time now, that the priests are afraid to convict people of their sins. So they won't preach this doctrine. And those that don't preach this doctrine, it's a total lack of charity for your brothers. For those that are outside the church, it's a lack of charity, total lack of charity. Because if you love someone, you will the highest good for them. 
What's the highest good that we could will for someone? Is eternal salvation. That's what they were created for. To know God, to love Him, to serve Him in this world, in order for Him to be happy with Him forever and eternity. So, the church even tells us in the la- in canon law, the last canon, canon number 1752, it's all about the salvation of souls. It says, and the salvation of souls which must always be the supreme law in the church is to be kept before one's eyes. Even canon law, the 1983 canon law, which has a million problems in it, Cardinal Egan, who redid it, he even said it was a disaster that it would have to be redone again. But even in that canon law, it says that the supreme law of the church is salvation of souls. Salvation of souls. So I want to be clear from the very beginning of this talk. What is the purpose of this talk? It's not to offend anyone. It's not to to get in people's face. Because I'm accused of that all the time. Oh, Father Isaac loves to get up there and grab that microphone and just beat people over the head. That's not what it's about. That's not what I'm... It's not fun to deliver this message. And that's why most priests don't do it, won't dare touch it. But it's necessary because I will commit sins of omission. Every priest that doesn't preach on this doctrine is committing sins of omission. It's the fundamental dogma of the whole church. Everything rests upon it. Because the church is Christ's church, and you can't separate Christ from his church. You cannot. I'm going to read this quote right now just to give you a a little uh, from the great... Doctor of the church, St. Augustine. And this is, and I quote him, he says, No man can find salvation except in the Catholic church. Outside of the Catholic church, no one, no, outside the Catholic church, one can have everything except salvation. One can have honor. One can have the sacraments. One can sing hallelujah and one can answer amen. One can have faith in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost and preach it too. But never can one find salvation except in the Catholic Church. The end of the quote. You see what he's saying? You, you could have everything, even the sacraments. Why? Because we have the Orthodox, the Greeks, the Russians. They have all seven sacraments. But they're outside the church. That's what he's talking, you know. And this was before the schism. St. Augustine's very clear. You could be a great Protestant preacher and you believe in the Father, Son, Holy Ghost. You reject his church, you reject Christ. And you will not be saved. You will not, as you're going to see as we go on. So, my friends, God wills the salvation of all souls. All souls. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4, it says, For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who will have all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator of God and men, the man Jesus Christ. In John 
chapter 3, verse 16. For God so loved the world as to give His only begotten Son, that whoever believeth in Him may not perish, but may have life everlasting. For God sent not His Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world may be saved by Him. This is beautiful. So this is why Christ came to save us, that we may not perish, that we have everlasting life. In John chapter 10, it's a beautiful verse, uh, chapter in the Gospels, because we see that our Lord, is, is, He compares Himself to the good shepherd. He's a good shepherd, and He calls us His sheep. And once again, I always remind people, it's not a compliment that He's calling us sheep, because sheep are stupid. They're stupid. Our Lord's trying to tell us, be humble, you're stupid. Without me and John, he says, you can do nothing. Absolutely nothing. We don't get that. So in John chapter 10, verse 11 to 16, our Lord says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd giveth his life for his sheep. But the hireling and he that is not the shepherd, whose own the sheep are not, See the wolf coming, and leave it the sheep, and flee it. And the wolf catch it, and scattered the sheep. And the hireling flee it, because he is a hireling, and he had no care for the sheep. I am the good shepherd, and I know mine, and mine know me. As the Father knoweth me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for my sheep. And other sheep, other sheep I have that are not of this fold, them also I must bring, and they shall hear my voice, and there shall be one fold and one shepherd. See, this is what our Lord's saying. There's only one fold. There's only one church. Only one church. There's only there's sheep. He goes, I have all he came for everyone. He said, I have sheep that are outside the fold. We must bring them back into the fold. Because what happens when you're out of the fold, when you're not with the shepherd? The wolf comes and devours you. Satan comes and devours you. You can't be cut off from the branch. In Ephesians chapter 4, we see that we have one Lord, one faith, and one baptism. I always tell people, how, how can it make, it doesn't make sense, all the uh, Protestantism. There's over 70,000 denominations, they say. They, that, that's been quoted for years. It's probably much more by now. And what are Protestants? Just what the word means. Protest, to protest. What are they protesting? They protest in Christ's church. You protest his church, you protest him. I said, so how can God, if they, we have one true God, we, we agree, Protestants agree with that. They also believe that he's omnipotent, omniscient, he knows all things. He's all good and all loving. And therefore, he cannot deceive nor be deceived. Cannot deceive nor be deceived. So I tell the Protestants all the time, I said, how can you say we're all brothers in the faith and you, we don't believe the same doctrines? And don't tell me, and how can God accept all these churches, 70,000 denominations? I'm just talking about Protestants now. When you all contradict each other, when you don't believe in purgatory, you don't believe in the Blessed Virgin Mary, you don't believe in the Eucharist, you don't believe in the seven, in the sacraments. Most of them today, they don't even believe that baptism is necessary for salvation. 
So when John, in John, when, John, when our Lord says that those who believe in him, what does it mean to believe in Christ? That you believe in everything he has taught us. That you believe in everything that he has revealed to Holy Mother Church. Or you don't really believe in him. So how can God accept? He can't contradict himself. It only makes sense. There has to be one true faith. And that's why we see that God establishes his church. In Matthew 16, 18, and he says to Peter, And I say to thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. And the gates of hell shall never prevail against it. And I will give to thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever shall be bound upon earth, it shall be bound also in heaven. And whatsoever thou shalt loose upon earth, it shall be loosed also in heaven. And this is awesome. That Christ establishes church to guide us. And, and, and that church, as we heard, we hear it all the time, the gates of hell won't prevail. But let me tell you something about what the fathers and doctors say. What does that really mean? Because sometimes I want to strangle people when they go, oh, oh, the church will never be destroyed. But in the interim, souls are going to hell. All that means is that when Christ comes back, the promise is there will be the vicar of Christ and a small remnant. A small remnant. And you can see the remnant is shrinking more and more and more as we get closer and closer. Okay? So God establishes his church to bring souls, to continue his mission of what? Salvation. Salvation of souls. And that's why what happens, what's the first command that he gives uh, the apostles before he, ascent, he before the ascension into heaven? In Mark 16, verse 18 to 16, our Lord says, And he said to them, Go ye into the whole world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth is baptized and is, and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be condemned. Condemned. And that means believeth in the whole gospel and everything that he reveals. St. Paul says, accept these written and oral traditions that I hand down to you. You have to accept them all. As St. Thomas Aquinas says, if you deny one doctrine, you deny them all. And so, my friends, this is the mission of the church. To go to all nations, to all people. And that's why as Roman Catholics, none of us should be satisfied until all the Jews, all the Buddhists, the Muslims, uh, you know, Baptists, or Protestants, and all are converted. Because Christ paid the price for these souls. Why should they be lost? Christ shed his blood for every soul. So we can't just be, oh, don't worry, the gates of hell will never prevail. And meanwhile, souls are going to hell. We can't have this attitude of just, oh, God will take care of it, don't worry. He chooses to use us to help save souls, not just priests. Because all of us, we're, gonna, we're either going to take many people to heaven with us, or we're going to take many people to hell. And so this is the mission of the church. This is, uh, you know, our mission. And how, what's the best way to bring people to Christ in the true church? 
is number one, to live a holy life. To live. And that's what these conferences are about. This is what the Fatima Center is about. Salvation of souls. That's why our Lord sends His mother. Because we're, we're stupid sheep. We don't get it. So our lady comes. She does all these miracles. She warns us. And who's listening? No one. Very few people. So, what we want to look at now. Okay, so Christ comes. We accept that. Every, all the Protestants accept that, right? He established the church. So what I want to look at now is who are members of the church? Who are members of the church? Because once again, outside of the members of the church, you, you can't save your soul. So in, in the Fundamentals of Dogma, Ludwig Art's book, he tells us this. He answers the questions. The members of the church are those who have validly received the sacrament of baptism and who are not separated from the unity of the confession of faith and from the unity of the lawful communion of the church. In the encyclical Mystici Corporis, Pope Pius XII declared, this is a great Pope, Pius XII, he declared this, actually only those are to be included as members of the church who have been baptized and professed the true faith, and who have not been so unfortunate as to separate themselves from the unity of the body or to have been excluded by legitimate authority for grave faults committed. So among the members of the church are not to be counted then, these are not to be counted members of the church, the unbaptized, open apostates and heretics, schismatics, and those excommunicated. Okay? Those are not members of the church. Unbaptized. This is one of the grave sins, my friend, of abortion. It's, it's, it's horrible. St. Augustine said the, gray, the, the, the real crime of abortion, that the babies are denied beatific vision. As Roman Catholics, we have to hold that there is a limbo of the babies. And that they don't suffer any pains whatsoever. And they're in a state of natural happiness. But they don't have the beatific vision because they die without being incorporated into the body of Christ. And and I, I, you know and we we sh- I, I wish I could go into more of that but I want to keep going but it, this is part of the thing this is the evilness of abortion and then you get some of these priests and they're getting up in the pro life movement telling people that all the aborted babies go to heaven you can't say that you cannot say that you cannot say that. So heretics, schismatics, and excommunicated, and so on. So now I want to read from some of the doctrines of the church. So in the fourth Lateran, uh, ecumenical Lateran Council, we learned the following things. Number one, that it is a divinely revealed truth that there is only one true ecclesia or church of God. Number two, that it is divinely revealed truth that this one true church is the Roman Catholic Church, the social unit properly termed the universal church of God. Number three, no one at all, according to God's own revelation, can be saved at the moment of his death who is outside this society. 
So at the moment of death, if you're not united to the church, you will not go to heaven. And those that reach the age of reason, seven and above normally, then you're capable, you know, if you're a mortal sin, where do you go when you die? You go to hell. You go to hell. The Council of Florence in from 1438 to 1445 from uh, Cantate Domino. It's a papal bull of Eugene, Pope Eugene IV. And it says this, It firmly believes, professes, and proclaims that those not living within the Catholic Church, not only pagans, but also Jews and heretics and schismatics, cannot become participants in eternal life, but will depart into everlasting flames which was prepared for the devils and his angels. Matthew 25, 41. Unless, unless... Before the end of life, the same have been added to the flock, and that the unity of the ecclesiastical body is so strong that only to those remaining in it are the sacraments, the sacraments of the church of benefit for salvation, and do fast and almsgiving and other functions of piety and exercises of Christian service, produce eternal reward, and that no one, whatever, Arms given, he has practiced, even as he has shed his blood for the name of Christ can be saved unless he has remained in the bosom of the unity of the church. These, my friends, are very powerful words, and we have to take them serious. And this is why we have to have as Catholic zeal to bring souls into the church. Today, all this nonsense and heresies we hear about the old covenant and still intact, it's all heresy. I'm going to read to you about that. So these statements I'm, I'm, I'm reading to you are not up for debate. You have to accept this. And he said, you know, it doesn't matter how, many, how much arms you give. You could be the biggest philanthropist in the world. If you're not in the bosom of the church, you're not going to save your soul, no matter how, how much good you think you may have done. And this is what people don't get about Protestants. What happens to a Protestant, say he has a valid baptism, which is very questionable because most, most Protestants, even the more conservative ones, they've changed the formula now. Most of the formulas are not in the name of the Father. I baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. And the Creator, the Redeemer, the Sanctifier, all that. It doesn't, it's invalid. But what happens when that Protestant reaches the age of reason and commits mortal sin? How is the Protestant's sins forgiven? How is his mortal sins forgiven? It's very sad, my friends, but most adults, once they reach... And not even before they reach, when they reach the age of reason, don't think seven-year-olds don't commit mortal sins, my friends. They do. Unfortunately, you know, I've heard everything in that confessional, in my missions. Young kids, especially today because of the media, they're looking at pornography on their cell phones. It's, it's, It's unbelievable. They're committing wicked sins now. But how are these Protestants going to save their souls when they're mortal sin? Nobody ever thinks about that. So Christ comes and establishes his church. 
only for Catholics. Only Catholics have to use the sacrament of reconciliation. It's nonsense. So in another singularity quandam in 1854, it's an allocution of His Holiness Pope Pius IX to the cardinals gathered in the consistory on the day after the definition of the dogma, the Immaculate Conception of the Blessed Virgin Mary, in December 9th, 1854. And I read, he says, We have learned with grief that another error, not less melancholy, is introduced into certain parts of the Catholic world and has taken possession of the souls of many Catholics, carried away with a hope for the eternal salvation of those who are out of the true church of Christ. They do not cease to inquire with solicitude what shall be the faith and the condition after death of men who are not submissive to the Catholic faith. Seduced by vain reasoning, they make to these questions replies conformably to that perverse doctrine. Far from us, venerable brothers, to lay claim, to put limits to the divine mercy, which is infinite. Far from us to scrutinize the counsel and the mysterious judgments of God. Unfathomable depth where human thought cannot penetrate. But it belongs to the duty of our apostolic office to excite your Episcopal solicitude and vigilance to make all possible efforts to remove from the minds of men the opinion as impious as it is fatal according to which people can find in any religion the way of eternal life. Employ all the sources of your minds and of your learning to demonstrate to the people committed to your care that the dogmas of the Catholic faith are in no respect contrary to divine mercy and justice. Faith orders orders us to hold that out of the apostolic Roman church no person can be saved, that it is the only ark of salvation, and that whoever shall not enter therein shall perish in the waters of the deluge. On the other hand, it is necessary to hold for certain that ignorance of the true religion, if that ignorance be invincible, is not a fault in the eyes of God. But who will presume to arrogate to himself the right to mark the limits of such an ignorance, holding in accounts the various conditions of peoples, of countries, of minds, and of the infinite multiplicity of human things? When delivered from the bonds of the body, we shall see God as he is, and he will comprehend perfectly by that And we will comprehend perfectly by what admirable and indissolvable bond the divine mercy and the divine justice are united. But as long as we are upon the earth, bent under the weight of this mortal mass which overloads the soul, let us hold firmly that which the Catholic doctrine teaches us, that there is only one God, one faith, one baptism. To seek to penetrate further is not permitted. However, as charity demands, let us pour out before God incessant prayers in order that from all parts all the nations may be converted to Christ. Let us labor as much as it is in us for the common salvation of men. The arms of the Lord are not shortened, and the gifts of the heavenly grace 
are never wanting to those who sincerely wish for them. I want to read that again. The arms of the Lord are not shortened, and the gifts of the heavenly grace of the heavenly grace are never wanting to those who sincerely wish for them and who beg for the assistance of that light. These truths should be deeply engraved on the minds of the faithful, that they may not suffer themselves to be corrupted by false doctrines, the object of which is to propagate indifference in matters of religion, an indifference that we see growing up and spreading itself on all sides to the loss of souls. And I'm going to read one more quote from Pius IX on, on the promotion of false doctrines in 1863. He says, Here too, our beloved sons and venerable brothers, it is again necessary to mention and censor uh, a very grave error, error and trap in some Catholics who believe that it is possible to arrive at eternal salvation, although living in error and alienated from the true faith and Catholic unity. Such belief is certainly opposed to the Catholic teaching. There are, of course, those who are struggling with invincible ignorance about our most holy religion, sincerely observing the natural law and its precepts inscribed by God on all hearts and ready to be obeyed, ready to obey God. They live honest lives and are able to obtain eternal life by the efficacious virtue of divine light and grace, because God knows, searches, and clearly understands the minds, hearts, thoughts, and nature of all, His supreme kindness and clemency do not permit anyone at all who is not guilty of deliberate sin to suffer eternal punishments. Okay, I'm going to end up explaining this as we go on uh, more. And so what I want to do after reading these quotes that are so explicit, and they mean what they mean, and I'm going to explain a little more. I'm going to give you cases, okay? You know, like, how can a Jew save, can a Jew save, be saved? You know, can a Muslim be saved? Can a Protestant dying on his deathbed, can that Protestant be saved without a priest taking him into the church? And these are sensitive subjects. Why? Because... Many people uh, have been converted, came into the Catholic Church. Many people have parents that died not being visibly in the church. They didn't get converted on their deathbed that we know of. And I'm going to explain to you. And I'm going to end the conference with a beautiful, true story that I think will bring peace to those of you that are in that situation and bring you hope, at least. Because a lot of these people... Salvation can, it's going to depend on a lot of who's praying for them. Our Lady of Fatima, remember, she said, most souls go to hell because no one will pray or do penance for them. Most souls go to hell because no one will pray or do penance for them. So I want to just go over some, some I'm going to give you some quotes now. I'm not going to tell you who they're from at first. And this is what's been going on. As Kevin said, as he introduced me, this poison of false ecumenism has devo- is devouring the church. This false communi- uh, uh, ecumenism that tells us that we should pray with Jews and, and, and voodoo doctors and all kinds of... I'm not joking. These popes have done this, as you're going to see. So I'm going to give you... 
some quotes now, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna, and then I'll tell you who they're from. And I want you to pay attention. Everything that I just said previously by defined doctrine that every Catholic has to believe, and compare it to what you're gonna hear now. Proselytism. You know, what proselytism is is to evangelize, to tell, to bring people that are outside the church to go to Protestants and tell them you're in error. Is you know, can I help you? I could help you. Uh, you know, whatever you need help. You don't understand the doctrine of the Blessed Virgin, the Eucharist. I'm willing to sit down with you. That's proselytizing to go bring those that are outside into the true fold. So here's a quote. I quote: Proselytism is solemn nonsense. Solemn nonsense. It makes no sense. We need to get to know each other, listen to each other, and improve our knowledge of the world around us. Hear that? Okay, he goes on. Should you go and convince someone else that he should become Catholic? No, no, no. God, go and encounter him. He is your brother, and this is enough. And go and help him. Jesus or the Holy Spirit will do the rest. I go on. Yet again, the problem of of ecumenism. Never fight. Let the theologian study the abstract realities of theology. But what should I do with a friend, a neighbor, or an orthodox person? Be be open. Be a friend. But I should make efforts to convert him. But should I make efforts to convert him or her? This is a very grave sin against ecumenism. This is a very grave sin against ecumenism. Proselytism. We should never proselytize the orthodox. And he goes on. And our shared experience of carrying the cross so as to be cured of this illness of the heart which embitters our life. This is important for you to do in the meetings. It is important you do this when you meet those who are Christian with the Bible and those who are Muslims with the Quran, with the faith that you have received from your fathers, a faith that will always help you move forward. Share your faith because this, there is one single God, the same God. God has spoken in one way, others in another, but move forward. So this is, this is like this is blasphemy. And one more here. It's the same, same one I'm on. He says this, We hold the Jewish people in special regard because their covenant with God has never been revoked for the gifts and the call of God are irrevocable. The, I mean, this is, that's heresy. Pure heresy. As Christians, we cannot consider Judaism as, our foreign, as a foreign religion, nor do we include the Jews among those called to turn from idols and to serve the true God. With them, we believe in the one God who acts in history, and with them, we accept this reveal, his revealed word. God continues to work among the people of the old covenant and to bring forth treasures of wisdom which flow from their encounters from his words. For this reason, the church also is enriched when she receives the values of Judaism. While it is true that certain Christian beliefs are unacceptable to Judaism and that the church cannot refrain from proclaiming Jesus as Lord, the Messiah, there exists as well a rich complementary which which allows us to read the text to the Hebrew Scriptures together and to help one another to mine the riches of God's Word. We can also share many ethical convictions and a common concern for justice and to development of people. Guess who this is, my friends? 
Pope Francis. And then his, the latest. I mean, it's nonstop. I'm picking a couple of things. But to not proselytize to these people, to the Jews, is a total, total lack of charity and a sin of omission. Because they cannot be saved until they come into church. The church has what we call, when it comes to salvation, necessity of means. And this is defined that every person, every person, there's no wiggle room in this necessity of means. You must know and believe that there's one God, true God, and that He's a good God. Number two, that He sent His Son to die on the cross for us. And number three, that He rewards the, the just forever, and He punishes the wicked for eternity. And therefore, you must have a con some concept of the Holy Trinity. Does a Jew believe that Jesus Christ came and died for us? How's he going to heaven? And so I'd be accused of being, uh, you know, uncharitable. That I, how dare I talk like this? I talk because I really care about them. I want every soul to go to heaven. Christ shed his blood for these souls down to the last drop. Why should the devil be victorious? And St. Paul, that's why St. Paul says too, that the faith comes by hearing. And that's why the preaching is so important. And that's why the, the church is failing miserably, the members of the church, the hierarchy especially, by preaching the exact opposite. Yeah, that's, that's heresy. But weak preaching? If faith comes by hearing, now you wonder why this hall is not full and packed? People don't have the faith no more. Without faith, my friends, you cannot be pleasing to God. Without faith, you can't be saved. You can't. And as far as I just read all this nonsense about uh, uh, the Jewish, uh, the old covenant being intact, Pope Benedict the 14th in 1756, this is what he says. The first consideration is that the ceremonies of the Mosaic law were abrogated by the coming of Christ and that they can no longer be observed without sin after the promulgation of the gospel. So, you know, I, I, I crack, I'm not crack up, it makes me cry. I, I see these churches, they say, come to the Seder meal. And they have a Seder meal in the basement at East to show you the old, it's a grave mortal sin to participate in the Seder meal. You know how many Catholics are going to this nonsense? And the priests are leading it? They're leading them to hell. Similarly, we profess that the legalities of the Old Testament, the ceremonies of the Mosaic Law, the rites, sacrifices, and sacraments have ceased at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. They cannot be observed without sin after the promulgation of God. The distinction of clean and unclean foods found in the old law pertains to the ceremonies which have passed away with the rise of the gospel. In the new catechism, my friends, we see heresy. It's horrible. Uh, I don't have the number down, but it says this. The plan of salvation also includes those who acknowledge the Creator. In the first place among whom are the Muslims. <laughs> These profess to hold the faith of Abraham, and together with us they adore the one merciful God, mankind's judge on the last day. We do not have the same God as the Muslims. In the Koran, and they call it a holy book, it's from the pits of hell. The devil wrote that himself. 
probably was automatic handwriting. I'm serious. I'm not choking when I say that. How can that be a holy book when it says that anyone who worships the Holy Trinity will burn in hell for eternity? How can they... How these people say when this... And they, they telling us that we have the same God as Muslims who says 27 times in the Quran, all infidels' heads must be cut off, you know, or must be put to death, excuse me. And they love cutting heads off. It's really sad. In the Quran, it says the rivers must flow with the blood of the infidels. Notice how it's from it's satanic, because the devil's the ape of God. He always inverts things. God says, lay down your life for your brother. Lay down your life for the infidels. How many of our holy saints went to, to, to foreign lands to evangelize? How many? My holy father, St. Francis, the patron saint of Pope Francis. You, you read about him, I left. People think, you get the impression he's like some kind of hippie on drugs, an acid or something, you know. <laughs> That diabolical movie called Brother Moon and Sister Sun, and he's dancing on the roof with a see-through nightgown chasing a sparrow. What nonsense. <laughs> if you study the life of St. Francis, and I recommend that you read the life of St. Francis by St. Bonaventure, and you'll see how tough he was, tough as nails. Tough as nails. And, and I'll explain, I was telling people last night that most people have no idea, you know, you see the animals, and it's true. St. Francis preached to the birds, the fish would stand up out of water, him and St. Anthony. And you, I'll give you, but you know what that means? It's not that he's all oh, these beautiful animals. Yeah, cre creation is beautiful. But, you know, they don't have a soul like us. But what does that mean, St. Bonaventure tells us? And contrary to most people think, St. Bonaventure tells us that St. Francis, my holy father, never committed a moral sin in his life. Yeah, you know, you know, so he was a troubadour, this and that, but he never committed a great mortal sin. And he was so holy, so like Christ, that's why God confirmed it with the stigmata in the end. But St. Bonaventure said, it's as if Adam didn't sin in him. What happened before the fall, the animals were friendly, they come right up. You know, they even run from human beings. And so he's so always like they, they, they come right up to him. It's almost like he was, of course, he had original sin. But it was as if he wasn't. So, so when St. Francis died and went to heaven, and uh, there was an argument. Half the angels were saying it's Francis, and the other half say, no, it's Jesus. <laughs> so what a holy man. And so what would my holy father, St. Francis, have to say to Pope Francis? He, did, he not only would say something, he did it. He, had, he wanted to be totally like Christ, St. Francis. Totally one with him. And so he, he, he begged God to die a martyr. And he went to Africa. He went to the sultan, the head Muslim. And he said, so this is going to be great. They're gonna, I'm going to evangelize them, tell them they've got to turn or burn, you know. And they're going to they convert or they're going to go to hell. And I'm going to go to heaven right away. So he gets down there, and they drag him right away. They tie him up, and he was filled with joy. He's getting beat. And so they bring him before the sultan, and the sultan challenges. Uh, St. Francis challenges the sultan. There's a big, big bonfire. And what happened? There, the clerics, the, the Islamic priests, you know, imams, they're over there. And he goes, your clerics and I walk through this fire. 
And whoever has a true God will come out unharmed. And what did the Islamic clerics do? They ran for the hills because they know they're worshiping the devil. I don't have a problem saying that. They ran for the hills. And that, that sultan was so touched by St. Francis. You know what impressed him more than that? When he wanted to give him tons of money. He said, I don't want money. What do I want money for? I want to go to heaven and put me, you know, martyr me, you know. And it, he, he ordered, they gave him, I'll give you all the women you want. I don't want women. I took a vow of chastity. This is the true church. This is the true church. The Mercedarian fathers. Beautiful group that there was a lady inspired them to found this group where they would offer these priests would go to a foreign country and exchange themselves for prisoners. Let the Muslims have Catholic prisoners that were ready to go dead. What men better loved than this have uh, better loved than this no man has than to lay down his life for his brethren? That's the true faith, my friends. So if we really love these people, if we really love our loved ones that are outside the church, we want to bring... Now, you don't beat them over the head, you know, but you've got to, number one, live a holy life and it will attract them to it. And you've got to pray. You've got to wear out your knees for these people. We're going to get into it a little more. So, there are some important questions then that that, you know, really where people want to know. And these are tough questions, you know. So, what are we to think of the salvation of those who are out of the pale of the church without any fault of theirs and who never had any opportunity to know better? Because all we always hear is the argument, all invincible ignorance, which means due to no fault of your own. You didn't know that there's a true church. You know, but n nobody ever brings up uh, the other kinds of ignorance, crass ignorance, which is due to laziness, or effective ignorance is where, where, where you, you're not sure about something. But if I go to Father Isaac, I think he's going to tell me what I don't want to hear, so I'm not going to, I just won't go to him. You know? That's very great, sin sinful. But invincible ignorance. But anyway, so I want to answer, to answer this question, I'll go right to St. Thomas Aquinas. Beautiful uh, answer. And he says, to this question we give the following answer. Their inculpable, invincible ignorance will not save them. Will not save them. But if they fear God and live up to their conscience, God in his infinite mercy will furnish them with the necessary means of salvation even so as to send, if needed, an angel to instruct them in the Catholic faith rather than to let them perish through inculpable ignorance. It's beautiful in the quote. And we see this in history. It's amazing the stories that we have. God wants you in heaven more than you want to go to heaven, my friends. His son died for you. You don't think he's going to you think he's going to deprive you to grace? He'd be a tyrant. A tyrant. You know it says, you know, Number one, there's no salvation outside the church. All right? Okay, number two, St. Alphonse says it would be blasphemous to say that God would concern someone, confirm someone in a false religion. Why? Because they'd be condemned to hell. Therefore, the next part of syllogism has to common sense to say, therefore, God, God has, is going to give them grace to realize that they're in the wrong religion. 
But anyway, a pagan who is invincibly ignorant, say, as St. Anthony Mary Claret said, God, once again, God ain't going to send us to hell because of his invincible, but he sins against nature, the natural law. Because St. Paul said the pagans will be judged by the natural law. What's the natural law? In Deuteronomy, when our Lord gave the commandments to Moses, what does he say? I have written these laws upon your heart. They're innate. It's beautiful watching little kids grow up, babies, and, and you see a little baby that just start walking, and they know, they, they start to sense more and more as they grow older, and they do something wrong, they look back, and they know they're up to no good. You know, that's the natural law seeping in. You know, people know it's wrong to kill. People know it's wrong to steal. So, we'll get into this a little more, but I want to give you an example. One of the greatest examples. You see, God normally is going to provide for us the normal means of salvation. Okay, what we're talking about with these pagan Indians like this would be called, they were baptism desire, I'll talk about it a little more. But normal, God provides the normal means that he established. Not me, not Peter, not him. No, Christ established the means. Baptism, you know, be part of his church. And so normally he's going to make that possible for, for souls to obtain. And, and, and then when souls are nap, obedient to the natural law, say somewhere in the Amazon, they've never seen a white man, never heard the gospel, if they're faithful to the natural law, God normally speaking, Aquinas would say, he'd send them a missionary preacher like myself to bring the true gospel to them. And I'm going to give you an example. One of the greatest cases documented of bilocation in the history of church is Venerable Maria of Agreta. And she lived in the 17th century, the mid-17th century. She was a, a Franciscan nun, a conceptionist, and, and those are the ones that are cloistered, Franciscan, holy nun. And so when the Franciscans went to Mexico, New Mexico, Mexico, they, they went looking for pagan Indians because they wanted to bring them the gospel because that's what Christ said, go to all nations. And they came upon these Indians in a procession, walking in the woods, and they had a cross with our Lord hanging, a corpus, everything. And they say, how can this be? Did you ever see a white man? No. You're the first white man we've seen. Well, what are you, how, what are you doing? Do you know? Yes, that's the second person, the Holy Trinity, Jesus Christ, condescended, took flesh, you know, redeemed us. How do you know this? And they say, well, every, for five years, and I'm going to read from uh, one of her biographies, for five years this lady appears every day at the same time, and she teaches us on a cloud, and she teaches us catechism. So they said to her, they said, uh, describe her. So they start describing her. And this friar, Franciscan priest like me, said, I know her. That's Maria in a Greta. She's behind the grill. And he, she, they described her perfectly. So the, they, the bishop there put him on a boat. They signed this, testified, everyone, every signature. They put him on a boat. Send him back to Spain. He goes right to the bishop right away. And he goes to the bishop, gives him this. So let's go to the common. He goes, wake them up. Mother, get down here. Bring Maria down. Let her swear on the Bible. She has to tell the truth on the obedience. And, she said, and they said, are you bilocating? And they said, yes. Tell us what you did. And she confirmed everything verbatim. And here is what I'm going to read from a book. And this book, it's beautiful. It says this. This holy virgin burned with a, with a most ardent love for God and for the salvation of souls. One day she beheld in a vision all the nations of the world, 
She saw the greater part of men were deprived of God's grace and running headlong to everlasting perdition. She saw how the Indians of Mexico put fewer obstacles to the grace of conversion than any other nation who were out of the Catholic Church and how God on this account was ready to show mercy to them. Hence, she redoubled her prayers and penances to obtain for them the grace of conversion. God heard her prayers. He, he commanded her to teach the Catholic religion to these Mexican Indians. From that time, she appeared by ways of bilocation, by way of bilocation to the savages, not less than 5,000 times, 5,000 times, instructing them in all the truths of our holy religion, okay, <clears throat> and performing miracles and confirmation of these truths. When all were converted to the faith, she told them that religious priests would be sent by God to receive them into the church by baptism. As she had told, as she had told so it happened. God in his mercy sent to these good Indians several Franciscan fathers who were greatly astonished when they found those savage fully instructed in the Catholic doctrine. When they asked the Indians who had instructed them, they were told that a holy virgin appeared among them many times and taught them the Catholic religion and confirmed it by miracles. Thus, those good Indians were brought miraculously to the knowledge of the true, true religion in the Catholic Church because they follow their conscience in observing the natural law. So this is how these, this is the way God does it. Another example is in Korea. How did the faith come to Korea? They were studying these different philosophies that they had. And they had a, China, a philosophy from, Chinese, from China, but it was Catholic. And they said, this is the only philosophy that makes sense. So they sent two young men to, Korea, uh, to China. They said, bring back a priest. They came back months, six months later. They said, we can't, they're too busy. They can't come. They're baptizing so many people over there and so on. So you know what they did? They sent those two men to Rome. And they said, bring back a priest. Well, eight years later, six years later, whatever, they came back priests themselves. This is what God does. He doesn't play games with us. He didn't let his son die for all these souls just to let them go to hell. And so this God provides. So can a Jew once again be saved on his deathbed? This Jew has to be so disposed and it has to be an extraordinary grace because he needs a gift of faith. Without faith, you can't be pleasing. So can God come and give that Jew, as St. Thomas infused knowledge, yes. Can he send an angel? He could do many things. But here's the thing. Is this baptism of desire possible? The church is very clear. And there are Catholics that hold no, only baptism of water is valid. But no, the church teaches baptism of water, blood, and water, uh, and desire. And so, is it possible the churches, the popes I've read from these encyclicals, which you have to believe, are saying yes. But that's not up for us to decide who gets in, who doesn't. Is it applied? How often does God apply? We don't know. We don't know. And we shouldn't presume. As it said before, we don't want to enter in. You don't, God doesn't let us enter into so many mysteries. But is it possible? Yes. And this is where we get a glimmer of hope. And I'm going to, I want to bring out this point for those that are outside the church, that have made die, that your mother and father may die. There was a Protestant. I can't, the church doesn't tell us that we could say that that person's in hell. 
We can't say they're in heaven. Oh, we can't say they're in hell. Because maybe they, they were able to make this act of faith. Maybe God gave them the grace, enlightened them, where they were united to the bosom of the church. And therefore, if a Jew or Protestant or Muslim gets this grace of baptism of desire, say on his deathbed, if they're, if they're not baptized, at that moment, guess what? They don't go to heaven as a Jew or Muslim or Buddhist. They go to heaven as a Catholic because then they're saved in and through the church. No salvation outside the church. And so, as far as a Protestant, now, say a Protestant has a valid baptism. I mean, I don't, you know, in my order, we didn't take care of parishes. So I've done not many baptisms, but I brought people into the church. As a priest, I don't care if they show me documents that they were validly ordained. Because how do I know that minister had the proper intention when he baptized that person? I don't know, and I don't trust it. So I always do a conditional baptism on Protestant when I take them into the church. Why, why, why should I play fast and loose with someone's soul? But say that Protestant's baptism was valid. Now he's on his deathbed or she's on his deathbed. Now, if it, you, you, there's only one baptism, so if it's valid, it's valid. You can't baptize them again. They can't have baptism of desire then. The only way that soul can get in, he in heaven is the same way a Catholic who's dying on their deathbed in mortal sin and there's no priest around. They have to make a perfect act of love. And that's, the saints will tell you it is a great, great miracle. Because to make a perfect act of love, it can't be mixed with a fear of going to hell. It's a pure love of God that you love Him so much you don't want to offend Him. And St. Alphonse says, as you live your life, so will you die. So all these people, they think on their deathbed, they live in these wicked lives. I hear it all the time, Father, don't worry, I'll call you right when I'm dying, you're going to come and anoint me. <laughs> I said, oh, I hope so, for your sake. But once again, remember, as you live, so you will die. So that Jew, or that Protestant who is, say, valley Baptist, has to make that perfect act of love. And you cannot reject the church at all. That Jew has to believe in Jesus with the baptism of desire. You can't reject that because that's one of the necessity of means. You can't reject the church. A Protestant minister say, I love Jesus, but that church is the who of Babylon. He's going to hell. He's going to hell. Going to hell. So I want to tell you a couple of stories to encourage you. And a couple that I know. So I was in El Paso. That was the last mission I did, believe it or not. Uh, Father Rodriguez invited me down. And I did a mission on the four last things. And I was in confession like 15 hours a day, every day there. And I was beat up. I finished the mission. I was half dead. Those people were beautiful down there. And they really wanted the truth. And thank God I was able to give it to them. So the last night I finished, it's like 3.30 in the morning. I just get in. I lay down on the bed and half dead. And this is a whole week of this. And my phone rings. I say, who's, who, what is the, my friend Don from Cali? Don, what do you want? Father, you got to help me. You got to help me. My, I said, what's going on? I hear screaming in the backyard. My mother's dying and she, she's been screaming all day. She's Protestant. She's Lutheran. And I've always told Don he had to pray for his mother because she ain't going to make it unless she comes into the church. And I used to tell him, you got to, and you know, and his, all his sisters were still Protestant. He converted. And he says, my sisters, they had two Protestant ministers in here, and they were, they ran out. They were afraid. The screams were so bad. They couldn't, they're doing reading from the Bible. 
and telling them, rebuking the devil, and the devil's laughing at them. And he, I said, all right, Don, let me get out of bed. Let me get my ritual. So I open up my ritual, chapter 3, they call it. It's an informal exorcism. The long prayer of St. Leo, Pope Leo XIII. So nomine pace, feeling spirit, son. The minute I made this, that in sign of cross, in, out loud, silence. I did the prayer. And I said, Don, you go get a Catholic priest now, you hear me? And he says, oh, I said, do it. And this, you know, so it's like 12 o'clock midnight. So I wake up that morning. I was going to take a ride to Silver City, and I'm driving with a friend of mine, a brother. And uh, I said, you know, Don didn't call me. I only called. I called Don. He, said, he goes, oh, what a miracle. What a, I said, what do you mean? He goes, yeah, you know, after those Protestant ministers ran, my, my sisters, two out of the three are converted now. They said, these Protestant ministers ran out, and then you just saying prayers in a different language, they didn't know, they, 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 they said, there's authority there, there's power, they realized. See, these are the graces that God gives. He, he's, he's not going to leave you in ignorance. If you're seeking the truth, as I read, God will show it to you in many ways. Many ways. And so I said, Don, did you get? I said, Don, I, I tell you, Don, I'm going to break your legs. Go get the priest now. He goes, What? I said, I said, go to your. He goes, What do I do? Go to your mother's bed I'll, and bring the phone. I said, Okay. Now you say to her this, Ma, Ma, do you want me to get the priest? And he, I said, Say it, Don. And he was nervous because his sisters are like pit bulls, you know. And uh, <laughs> and so guess what? She says, Yes, Don, get the priest. And then he went to a traditional priest. I won't say where or who, because I wanted to strangle this guy. And you know what he said, Father? Uh, he goes, sorry, sir, I can't go. I have to teach a catechism class to the, to the teenagers. I said, you moron. That, what great a catechism class. She said, children, i got to go. A lady outside the church, 93 years old, on a deathbed. i got to go save her soul. So he went to this ancient Monsignor, he's like in his 90s or something, and he got in there, and that guy, he, she was baptized, and, and then she talked, after I did those prayers with her, she talked to her children for two hours. She, didn't, she was in a coma for like two weeks. She died in the church, a Catholic. Because Don listened too. He was always praying a rosary. Blessed Mother, once again, souls go to hell because no one would do penance for them. No one would do penance for them. He was doing it. He was rewarded. I did a mission in Oklahoma, and I always preach no salvation outside the church because it is so important. So I, I went to visit this priest. The father, this couple want you to come over to their house. I really didn't want to go. He said, oh, come on, you got to go. So I went. She says, Father, I, can I tell you a story before you eat? Yeah. She goes, I was a Baptist. Like my mother and father are all Baptists. And when you preach no salvation outside the church, I used to cry, cry every day. I was begging the Blessed Mother from that day on, please convert my mother, because I didn't have a fear before you opened your mouth. And Mother wasn't budging. She's on her deathbed now. This is a pretty wild story. And so she's on the deathbed, and so this woman goes to her husband, do me a favor, take my father out of here. I'm going to try one more time, because I can't believe the Blessed Mother is not going to answer my prayer. She's a loving mother. So they take the father out. And then all of a sudden she goes, Ma, would you like me to get Father Peter? And she goes, I was just going to tell you to get him. My friend went there. He conditionally baptized her, confessed her, confirmation, extreme unction, anointing of the right, holy viaticum. Father comes back. He don't even know what happened. 
And so they're in the room. And all of a sudden, this lady says, Father, I saw, I, I, I yelled out, this first said, Mommy's going to heaven. And my mother died at that instant when I yelled that out. And then I grabbed my husband and she said, I got to talk to you. Come outside. And she said, you know, when I yelled that out, he goes, yeah. He goes, I, she goes, I saw this vision of this gigantic angel. He was like 12 feet tall, blonde, long hair, big arms. He came and he put his hands into my mother's body. And he, I saw he took us all. And the husband said, shut up. Don't tell nobody that. They'll think you're crazy. So four hours later, they go home. And you know what happens? Okay. The father, he's all shooken up. And they, of course, his wife died. He says, I got to tell you something, both of you. You're going to think I'm nuts. You know, when you yelled out, Mommy went to heaven? Did she die? Yeah. He goes, I saw this angel, 12 feet tall, blonde hair. He put his hands into my wife's body and took a soul. He described it, though. They described it better than I Perfectly exact words. Praise God. Praise God. So I want to end with a story that is, to me, this is, if this doesn't bring tears to your eyes, there's something wrong with you. All right? It's a story about blessed uh, Augustine Cohen. Blessed Augustine Cohen was Herman Cohen. He was a Jew. I think he was even an atheistic Jew. And he had no belief at all. And he was living a wicked life. He was a prodigy. He was a great pianist and all this. So they, they, they invited him to play benediction in a Catholic church. He was a total pagan, basically. And at benediction, he's playing. And all of a sudden, when the priest lifted up the host to bless everyone, those monstrance, he was driven down. Something penetrated him. And, and, and he, he was like converted on the spot. Our Lord converted him. He became a Carmelite priest, and he took the name Augustine because he lived a wicked life. And so here's a story about Father Cohen's. His mother died without holy baptism. She died a Jew. In the eyes of the other, in, in the eyes of the unwise, she died as an unconverted Jewess, in spite of the many prayers offered for her by her priestly son. And so this priest, he translated this from this a book on the, on the story. And he says this, note, number one, that Father Herman had consecrated his mother to Our Lady hundreds of times and offered many prayers for her salvation. He never lost hope in his mother's cause. The last moments for Mrs. Cohen arrived on the 13th of December, 1855. Father Herman was preaching Advent in, in Lyon at the time, and he announced this sad news to his friend in these terms. God has struck a terrible blow to my heart. My poor mother is dead, and I remain in incertitude. However, we have so much prayed that we must hope that something has passed between her soul and God during these last moments that we cannot know about. That we cannot know about. Because we don't penetrate these mysteries, all right? He goes on. We can easily imagine the pain of Father Herman in learning of the death of his mother. He had so much prayed and so much had prayers said for her conversion. And she came to appear before the tribunal of God without having received holy baptism. He says, I also have a, I 
also have a mother, would he write one day. I have left her to follow Jesus Christ. She no longer calls me her good son. Already her hair is silver. Already her brow is furrowed. And I am afraid to see her die. Oh no, I would not like to see her die before loving, loving Jesus Christ. And already for many years I waited for my mother. That I waited for my mother, that which Monica waited for Augustine. God seemed to have despised all his prayers and rejected his loving and legitimate desires. His faith and his love were put through a harsh trial. Nevertheless, in his sorrow, if his sorrow was deep, his hope in the infinite goodness of God would not allow itself to be struck down. A short time later, he confided to the St. John Vianney, the curé of ours, his disquiet about the death of his poor mother who died without the grace of baptism. Hope, replied the man of God, hope you will receive one day on the Feast of the Immaculate Conception a letter that will bring you great consolation. These words were almost forgotten when on the 8th of December, 1861, six years later, after the death of his mother, a father of the company of Jesus handed to Father Herman the following letter. Now this person who wrote this letter died in the odor of sanctity. She was well known in the religious and ascetical world by her written works on the Eucharist. She was a very holy soul, testified by many priests. So she writes this in the letter to, six years later. On the 18th of October, after Holy Communion, I found myself in one of those moments of intimate union with our Lord, where He made me feel so, where, where He made me so feel His presence in the sacrament of His love that faith seemed to no longer, seemed no longer necessary to believe Him there. After a short time, He had me hear His voice, and He wanted to give me some explanations relative to a conversion that I had had the night before. I remember that in that conversation, one of my friends had manifested a surprise that our Lord, who has promised to accord everything to prayer, had however remained deaf to those of the Reverend Father Herman, who had so many times addressed him to obtain the conversion of his mother. Her surprise went almost as far as discontentment, and I had had difficulty in having her understand that we must adore the justice of God and not to seek to penetrate its secrets. I dared to ask of my Jesus how it was that he who was goodness itself had been unable to resist the prayers of Father Herman and not grant the conversion of his mother. This was our Lord's response. Why does Anna always want to sound the secrets of my justice? And why does she seek to penetrate mysteries that she cannot comprehend? Tell her that I do not own my, owe my grace to anyone, that I give it to whom I please, and that in acting in this way, I do not cease to be just and justice itself but that she may know that rather than not keep the promises that I have made to prayer, I will upset heaven and earth, and that every prayer that has 
my glory and the salvation of souls for object is always heard when it is clothed in the necessary qualities. He added, and to prove to you this truth, I willingly make known that which passed at the moment of the death of the mother of Father Herman. My Jesus then enlightened me with a ray of his divine light, and he had me understand, or rather to see in him, that which I wanted to try to relate. At the moment where the mother of Father Herman was on the point of rendering her last breath, at the moment that she seemed deprived of awareness, almost without life, Mary, our good mother, presented herself before her divine son. And prostrated at his feet, she said to him, Pardon and mercy, O my son. For this soul who is going to perish, yet another instant she will be lost, lost for eternity. I beseech you, do for the mother of my servant, Herman, that which you would like to be done for your own. If she was in her place, and if you were in his The soul of his mother is his most precious good. He has consecrated her to me thousands of times. He has consecrated her to the tenderness and solicitude of my heart. Could I suffer her to perish? No, no, this soul is mine. I will it. I claim it as an inheritance, as the price of your blood and of my sufferings at the foot of your cross. Hardly had the sacred suppliant ceased speaking when a strong, powerful grace came forth from the source of all graces, from the adorable heart of our Jesus, and came to enlighten the soul of the poor dying Jew, instantly triumphing over her stubbornness and resistance. This soul immediately turned herself with love and confidence towards him whose mercy had pursued her as far as the arms of death and said to him, O Jesus, God of the Christians, God whom my son adores, I believe, I hope in thee, have pity on me. In this cry heard by God alone, which came from the intimate depths of the heart of the dying woman, were enclosed a sincere sorrow for her obstination and for her sins. The desire of baptism, the express will to receive it and to live according to the rules and precepts of our holy religion if she had been able to return to life. This leap of faith and hope in Jesus was the last sentiment of that soul. It was made at the moment when she brought towards the throne of divine mercy. Breaking away the weak bonds which held her to her mortal casing, she fell at the feet of him who had been her savior a moment before being her judge. After having showed all these things, our Lord added, Make this known to Father Herman. It is a consolation that I wish to accord to his long sorrows, so that he will bless and have blessed everywhere the goodness of the heart of my mother and her power. Over mine. So, totally unknown to Reverend Father Herman, the poor invalid who has just now penned these lines is happy to think that she has perhaps spread a little consolation and balm on the still bleeding wounds of the heart of his son and priest. 
She dared to ask the alms of his fervent prayers, and she likes to believe that he will not refuse to one who, even though unknown to him, is united to him by the sacred bonds of the same faith of the same hopes. What, appear, what appears to add great authority to this letter is that it had been announced six years in advance by the venerable John Vianney, St. John Vianney. That is such a beautiful story, and I hope it encourages you and gives you hope if you have ones that, are, that you think died outside the church. Never give up on them. But I like this, this is like a definition of this holy uh, baptism of desire. How at the end, where it says, with sincere, she had serious and sorrow for her obstination and for her sins. She had the desire of baptism, the express will to receive it and to live according to the rules and precepts of our holy religion if she had been able to return. That's baptism of desire, my friends. And so, my friends, what can we learn from this beautiful story? Many, many things. We can learn, number one, never give up on a soul, even after they die, no matter how bad it looks. Never. That your prayers count. And that there's no time with God. There is no time with God. Why did God let Blessed Cohen wait six years before he revealed to him that his mother was saved? Don't, don't that seem cruel at first? He was broken. He prayed on his knees for his mother. And he, he, but he never blamed God. He never, he never gave up hope. And I believe one of the reasons is because, once again, there's no time with God. And so God knows how much you're going to pray for your mother or father that died outside the faith that you didn't see them come in. At. You don't know what transpired between God and that soul. And I'm not telling you they're in heaven, but I'm telling you fight for their soul. Do penance, have masses said for them. And God could apply the graces ahead of time to a soul. The, the goal, the prayers that you would have for your mother or father or your aunt or uncle, whoever it is, for the next 20, 30 years, God could t he takes that just like he did for the Blessed Virgin. He applied the grace for her immaculate conception ahead of time before his crucifixion. And this is awesome. We also learn from Blessed Combs, perseverance once again in prayer, never give up. Keep praying, keep trusting in God. Okay, number one, that there is a baptism of desire. Many people deny it. Phenonites especially. Only water. Okay, number, and the last thing I want to say is that Our Lady Fatima once again told us most souls go to hell because no one will pray or do penance for them. Little Jacinta, Saint Jacinta, this is my favorite. That little girl, six years old, when Our Lady opened up the center of the earth, she saw hell. She was never the same after that. She couldn't stop. She always wanted to do penance. She goes, I don't want souls to go to hell. And she died at nine years old like a victim soul. She died all alone in a, in a hospital. Was she alone? No, her mother was there with her. But she gave everything to save souls that she didn't know. She didn't know. So, my friends, are we gonna, you going to let that little six-year-old put you to shame? Are you willing to fight for... So I, told, I tell this many times, I had a spiritual director that was blessed to know Father Matteo, the founder of the Home Enthronement. And when he was an novitiate, he used to teach them sometimes. And he says, so you men want to be priests, huh? And they all, yeah, yeah. 
And he goes, are you willing to pay the price? Are you willing to pay the price for souls? Someone has to pay. And that's my question. Are you willing to pay the price for those love? Are you willing to pay the price to help Jews, Buddhists, Muslims get into heaven? That's true charity. That's true charity. Never be afraid. And this is a dogma that I really encourage you to keep studying. There's great books. Uh, Father Mueller has a book, The Great Catholic Dogma. Father Fenton has a great book at Angelus Press, No Salvation. And read these books and entrench yourself in it. It will give you zeal for souls. And last is consecration to the Blessed Virgin. Now, I learned something with Blessed Cohen because I was always taught to that we can consecrate ourselves to the Blessed Virgin, of course. And then only parents can consecrate their children because they have maternal and paternal rights over their children. But he was consecrating his mother. And she said it thousands of times. So now, man, my prayers have changed. I consecrate everyone. <laughs> I consecrate especially my enemies. Especially my enemies. So my friends, I hope this has helped you and I hope that we pay attention and that never, our lady, so when she goes before her son, look what she said. I mean, those words are so beautiful. I mean, she says that she claimed the price of his passion, but not only his passion, but also she says, I will, here it is again. He was consecrated to her, the ten of her. And then she said, could I suffer her to perish? The Blessed Mother speak. No, no, this soul is mine. I will it. I claim it as an inheritance, as the price of your blood and of my sufferings at the foot of your cross. She is a co-redemptrix. Her mission with Christ is one, save souls. The great fathers, uh, many saints tell us, consecration to the Blessed Virgin is a sign of predestination. Consecrate yourself. Consecrate your children. Consecrate everyone you can. And, you know, God will bless them. He'll bless you. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, amen. We give you thanks, oh my God, for all your blessings, for you live and reign forever. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, amen. We hope you have enjoyed this presentation brought to you by the Fatima Center. Copyright 2019. All rights reserved. We invite you to visit our website, www.fatima.org. Immaculate Heart of Mary, or Pronobis.